0: Let me tell you a story here real quick. Hey, I'm Jesse, and uh, glad you guys made it, and those of you tuning online, glad you're here as uh, well. We had first service. We're kind of, part of it's because I grew up here, and part of it is uh, just, it's been driven into me for so long, you just never cancel church. Why would you ever cancel church? So we never cancel church. We had service at 8.30, uh, similar crowd as this, uh, service at 10.30, and the first service was pretty fun because... I was checking Facebook, and there are several of our congregants posting pictures of them trying to get to church at the eight, to the 8.30 service, and they didn't make it, which is pretty funny. But we have a, another gal who comes to church here, and um, she's growing in her faith, and she is just really excited about who Jesus is. I don't want to give her name away, but it's a pretty neat deal. But she, she got her car stuck last night. She lives in Glenshire. She rode her mountain bike on Glenshire Drive to church this morning exactly yeah so if you're not at church this morning no guilt or condemnation um hey turn to romans chapter 15 and what we do every year brad beers started it last week i'm thankful that he was able to fit in i i lost my voice last week you'll probably pick up a little bit that my speech is a little bit more labored than normal maybe you won't even notice which is great uh so i'm still kind of recovering from that but um Every year, we take about four weeks up until Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to celebrate Christmas. So all of our messages are are about the Advent. And Advent just means coming, the coming of Jesus, the coming of our Savior, the coming of the Messiah. Advent does two things for us. Number one, it focuses our attention on the miraculous Virgin Birth of Jesus from the very uh, you know the beginning of the story of Christ, the incarnation of God. In the flesh. And then in Advent, we also celebrate the long awaited hope. And that's the title of the message this morning uh, long awaited hope. The hope uh, from the promise that we have that there'll be another Advent, another coming of Jesus. And so we look back to the first Advent to give us hope for the first, uh, for, I'm sorry, for the second Advent. And Advent really is just a way for us to lengthen and to intensify the joy of Christmas. And we know that there are those who lengthen and intensify right after October 31st, right? You put up that tree October 31st. I was watching a cartoon with my kids the other day, and there was a funny show of, of a mom who got a Christmas tree on, on on the just after October 31st, put up the tree, it died, so they had to get another one. And then that one died, and they had to get another one. They paid for three Christmas trees. So hopefully uh, your tree will be perfect for Christmas Day, okay. So in Romans 15, the reason I wanted to launch out of this to give you some backdrop because context matters. The book of Romans. One one of these days we'll we'll get to the book of Romans as a church, but it's a big book and it's a powerful book. And let me just give you uh, before we get to chapter 15 some background understanding of where we're going uh, or what Romans builds for us. To chapter 15, we'll tie it all into Christmas and into Jesus. So Romans fifteen thirteen uh, reads this, May the God of hope, right? that's our theme this morning, hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's a bookend. Romans 15 bookends, this, that verse has two bookends. It starts with the God of hope. God is the God of hope. He's not just the God who preaches hope. He is hope. And so we have hope in the beginning of this verse for what purpose and what end? Obviously for our joy, it says, and our peace. Those are two other Advent themes that we would then be abounding in, that we would have much hope. Now, before we get there, Romans makes the argument in chapters one through four the first part of it is, is basically Romans 1 through 4 is you're without hope. You are fallen in your nature, and you are broken in your sin. You're hopeless. That's basically what the first four chapters of Romans is there for. Chapter 5 tells us that we have a hope, though, even though that we were without hope, we now have hope to be justified through faith. And that justification, which means we're, we have a good standing before God, we're pure before him, we're righteous before him, <clears throat> that brings peace. Then chapter 6 through 7 talks about our sanctification, how we grow. Then chapter 8 is our future glorification. Big fancy words, right? We, we become justified in Christ, and though we have this right standing before the Lord, we now walk in a process of sanctification, growing in Christ, and we all long for that second hope, that second coming Glorification, which is that the future glory that, that God's going to come. In Romans 8.24, uh, pulling out of that from glorification, reads like this. For in this hope, everyone say hope. There it is again. We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So we're going to define hope first. That's the first point is just how do we define hope. This verse kind of gives us an idea of how we do that. It says, first of all, it's not seen so hope is founded on something that isn't seen. That's what Romans 8.24 says. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, which we have a hope, second coming, all the promises in Christ are yes in Jesus, we wait for it with patience. Right? Then chapters 9 through 11 of Romans continues, talks about how God calls people to himself in those, in those chapters. I'm obviously summarizing a lot here, right? You understand that? You're like, wait a minute, Romans actually, okay, the, just highlighting. 12 through 15 tells us the marks of believers, chapters 12 through 15, the marks of believers uh, who live out their faith, Then he gives us closing remarks. And right there at the end, near the end, before the closing remarks, Paul says in Romans, we have a hope from the God of hope, and that we would abound in hope. So let's try to understand what hope is. Let's define it from what scripture is telling us, and, and, and so we have an idea of what we're hoping in. Hope, the definition of hope, a simple definition. I've got two, one that I wrote and one that I found online. Here's the one I found online. The one online says, probably from Wikipedia or something stupid like that, a confident and joyful trust, a confident and joyful trust centered on someone or something. It's centered on someone or something. So there's an object of our hope. Just like when we talk about there's an object of our faith, right? You remember that? We, we're saved by faith, and we've talked about how, how it's not so much about your faith as it is the object of your faith. So if you're falling down a mountain and you grab a, a stick, and you have faith to grab the stick, it's great you had faith, but if that stick isn't well rooted into the ground, who cares? <laughs> you still die. But if the object is rooted firmly into the mountainside, because the object of your faith is strong it will hold you likewise likewise with hope hope is only as strong as the thing you're hoping in hope is only as strong as what you hope in now a more rounded biblical definition of hope which i've attempted to piece together is this is how i've defined it a lake hope ultimately is a lake of promises we swim in a lake of promises we swim in from Scripture that gives us confident and joyful trust centered on Jesus. So the secular hope is, hope is centered on something or someone, and you're hoping that it will deliver something or or some kind of emotion. But biblical hope, according to Scripture, is hope that is rooted in the promises of Jesus, the promises of the Bible, and those promises give us confidence because our hope is centered on the person of Jesus. Amen? Are you with me? Small, ca- small crowd. Say whatever you want. Dude, it's like family in here. Okay? They can't hear you on the camera. You're not mic'd. You can do whatever you want in here right now. Okay? No one will know. Okay. That's point one. Definition of hope. It's got to be centered on something. Right? It's an expectation that something's going to deliver, <clears throat> whatever that may be. Now, here's what you need to know. Hope is part of the human condition. You are literally hardwired for hope. Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, you don't live by instinct. Every decision, I love this, this commentary he gives us. Every decision you make is fueled or motivated by hope. Listen, that's a strong argument, but this is the argument that he's making. He's saying, everything you do, Every choice you make, even the choices you've made to get here this morning, or if you're online to not get here this morning, no judgment, no judgment. Every decision you've made is based on hope. It's fueled, motivated by hope, he says. And then he says this, and I believe this to be true. Your happiest moments are about hope fulfilled. If you think about the times you were most joy-filled, it was the moment that hope was filled. It, the cup of hope was filled. The expectation was filled. And your saddest moments are about hope dashed. You expected something, you wanted something, you didn't get it. Right? So for me, right? My wedding day was probably one of the one of if not the best highlights of my entire life. I had hoped for years to get married and now hope fulfilled. I finally got her, and she said yes, right? That was it. She's mine. There's no getting out of this. It's a covenant. You're stuck with me forever, right? It's one of those kind of deals is the same thing when I had kids, right? Nine months of anticipation, nine months of is the child going to be healthy? I'm hoping the child will be healthy. I'm hoping the baby will be fine. Nine months of that. And then when you get it, happiest moments in the world. There's that child in front of you. Hope has been fulfilled. All of us have hopes, whether it's, I hope it snows. I hope it doesn't snow. I hope it stops raining. I hope my kids grow up to be good. I hope the church grows. I hope I'll find happiness. It could be a, a, an object of, 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 of many things. The, the idea I want you to carry away with is that you can't get away from hope. And some psychologists would say you're actually born with hope. And at some point along the line, through childhood, your parents weeded out of you. And you start to become pessimistic. You can't live a pessimistic life, especially as a Christian. Could you imagine if you got up every morning and you're like, and your hope, it, it, your, 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 your negativity, your mind of, of negative thinking was, like, I can't go out today. I might get in a car accident. I can't do this because I might die. I can't do this because I might get sick. I can't do this. <clears throat> we can't live that way. We have to live with the expectation of, and we all do, Everybody lives with the expectation that things are going to get better. Now, the downside to that, though and this is why at Christmas time, hope is such an important message is because in our society, hope is being utterly and completely suffocated. I mean, think of this for a moment. Th- these are recent statistics. Half of Americans, half, say they're without hope. Half. In addition to that, if you've done any studies at all, you know that drug and alcohol-related deaths are higher than they've ever been. Way higher than they've ever been. Blowing records out of the water with addiction. In addition to that, the same studies say that Americans have never been more stressed. Can you relate? That Americans have never been more stressed than they are today. And, and then the most recent studies say 42%. This is from Barnath, who does a bunch of research for... Churches, Barna says 42% of pastors are looking to leave and go somewhere else. Uh, I am in touch with a guy uh, online, pastor online, and he was saying that uh, he knows three pastors in the last week that have quit. Why? No hope. There's no hope. And what Romans says is, Romans tells us that he wants to be the supplier of our hope. He wants to fill us with hope so that we'll have peace and joy. Do you see that in Romans? He wants to fill you with hope. And now the only way that you can kill, like the only way you can open the door to a lack of hope, the only way that you can kill hopelessness and unlock the door to more hope is by putting to death your false hopes, putting to death your false hopes. So what do I mean by that? Well, all of us have false hopes. And false hopes assault real hope that is centered on Jesus. And false hopes can be anything. It could be a number of things. A false hope could be, uh, for instance, there's football on today. There are many who have a false hope in their team winning, right? How many people uh, on a Sunday go to a stadium and dress like their football team, paint their faces scream and yell, somewhere in Buffalo, there's 10 feet of snow just like us, and there's some lunatic with his big old belly painted blue, and he's not wearing a t-shirt, but he has a beanie on, and he's cheering for the Buffalo Bills, right? That guy, that, you tell me what happened. He has every hope right now that his team's going to win, but if his team loses, his whole day's ruined. I mean, how many of you seen the ridiculous videos of somebody's team losing and, and they punch their TV or they throw something at their TV? <coughs> false hope. Your identity should never be in a football team. It shouldn't be in power. It shouldn't be in a politician, though much of our nation has tried to put their hopes in their its political party. You could put your false hope in an ideology, or you could put it in money, or you could put it in sex and pleasure, you could put it in success or work. You could even put your hope in your marriage and your kids. None of that necessarily is bad in and of itself, but when it becomes your ultimate hope, eventually it will fail you. Remember what I said? Your, your hope is only as strong as what you're hoping in, which means if it doesn't have a lot of strength, it's, it's going to fail you in some form or another. Now, it has been said that you could take all of these different false hopes, think of them like a tree. So a tree grows and it produces fruit, right? And you go up to that tree and you want to pick its fruit. And so you pick it. Now imagine if that tree metaphorically was a tree of your false hopes. And so you walk up to the tree and, and you know, to use my illustration, You're a Buffalo Bills fan, right? And you go, I can't put my hope in the team. I can't put my hope in football. So you take the fruit off and you throw it away because, you know, that's not good fruit. That's not going to lead to a good, healthy life. Oh, well, I've got my hope in an ideology, Uh, maybe in a certain kind of theology even. You can even make an idol out of your doctrine. And so you realize these things aren't healthy for you. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. So you reach up and you grab that and you have another addiction, you grab that one, you throw it away. And then you walk away and you think to yourself, I've done the good work of a Christian. I've done the good work of a follower of Christ and I've put to death my sin and I've done the right thing. However, months, maybe even years go by and what happens to the fruit on the tree? Well, it grows back. Eventually, or in reality, we have a tendency to take our idols and swap them out, to take our false hopes and swap them out. John Calvin said, our hearts are like idol factories. He says, what happens is we just keep churning out false hopes, one false hope after another. And so how many of you have known somebody who's had one addiction, they plucked the fruit, kicked it to the curb, and like, I'm clean, but then they transferred it. And now another piece of fruit grew up over here, and they traded this addiction for another addiction. And they've just transferred addictions. They've never really dealt with the addiction. Because we have to get to the root of where our false hopes are. We can pull the fruit off, or we can get down and we can start tearing apart the roots at the bottom. We can cut the tree down, we can dig out the cancer, whatever it might be, metaphorically speaking, and, and, and replace it with the hope that is Jesus. And many theologians have said, ultimately, you could say politician, you, you could say, uh, maybe, like I said, your doctrine or your theology is an idol or something else is an idol or a false hope. It could be, again, millions and millions of things. To Calvin's point, it's an idol factory. You, we as humans, as sinners, Romans 1 through 4, are super creative at turning our hope and our worship to anything other than Jesus. Now, when we get to the root, what they say is there's actually only four things at the root so this is helpful if you're somebody who has placed your hope in something other than Jesus in this Christmas season. Because you may say, "Well, I just got to I got to I got to kick the alcohol. I got to I got to kick whatever this may be. I got to kick it. I got to get rid of it." And you're trying so hard to get rid of it and you can't really deal with it. And it's because you're not getting to the root. And the root comes down to four things. This is what theologians say. Ultimately, we only have four idols or four false hopes. And all of our hopes, whether it's addiction or politician, flow out of these four. They're the roots. What are they? Number one, power. The the desire for influence and recognition. All you, it doesn't take much. All you have to do is probably anybody with over, I don't know, 10,000 followers on Instagram, they, they probably fit into this to some degree. right? I, I want to have influence and recognition. I want to control. That's number two. So power, control. I want everything to go according to my plan. And you know how this is a false hope when things go out of control and you get stressed out. So we just used one this morning that was really easy for all of us. If you got up this morning and you were like, I got to shovel this and I got to blow that, false hope <laughs> that that's the that is your idol of control i feel stressed because things are out of my control the third one is comfort or pleasure comfort this is kind of mine man i love chilling on my couch i like watching a good movie right life can be so stressful it's like just just give me time next to the fire right you got to have the right clothes on you got to uh, feel comfortable. You don't want to be in an environment where people are going to talk to you too much if you're an introvert. And and you want to control that because that's part of your issue too. But you just don't want to be uncomfortable. You don't like exercising because that doesn't feel good. Anybody in that boat? I mean, I know I'm not. I'm talking to trucky people. We all exercise, right? How about this? Everyone knows I do cold plunge. Uh, I do a cold shower in the mornings now because of my experience with cold plunge. Do you know in part why I do that? To choose the hardest thing I can possibly choose in the morning. Get it out of the way. Right? Everything else after that will be easy. Just choose hard instead of comfort. And if you take a cold shower in the winter in Truckee, you're ready to go for the day. And you have an ice cream headache. Like, no, you can't believe. The last one is approval longing to be accepted or desired. So those are the four ultimate roots of our false hope. Again, if you're going to have real hope and you're going to keep hope alive, you have to dash these four idols. How do you do that? It's the opposite of those things. It, it ties them back into the gospel. Here's the four. Number one, if, you, if your God is a God of power, like idol, an idol of power, a false hope of power, you have to yield to his power. It's not about your power. It's not the power you possess. It's the power he possesses, and you yield to it. Number two, you submit to his control. You can't control things. Control is an illusion, but you submit to the control of Jesus, and you surrender to all of the things that are God's. So this morning, I wasn't anticipating the amount of snow we got this morning. I thought we'd have some because I went out last night roughly around 1030 to kind of clear things out thinking, oh, it'll be easier this morning, you know? And then I woke up and I was like, huh. Hope dashed. I was wrong. (laughs) Our children's director called me this morning while I was clearing snow to let me know because they live in Reno that they weren't going to make it. We don't have children's shirts next door. It's just flexible, right? Blessed are the flexible for they're not been out of shape. That was the line in San Diego when I was uh, ministering down there. Blessed are the flexible for they're not been out of shape, right? And I woke up this morning and, and, and it's kind of, okay, I got more to do. I was short with my, my children's director because they were telling me they couldn't make it. And I was like, I got to go. I've got to get to church because I'm trying to make it because I still have to preach. No one else needs to be here, but at least I need to be here, right? This part's important. And so I was short with them. Why? Because I wasn't completely submitted to the, the, the control of God. And so you have to yield to his power, yield to his control, and then you have to remember he is the greater comfort. If, if comfort is your God, you have to remember that only Jesus can comfort you. Only he is the balm to the soul that you need. And then lastly, you have to rejoice in his approval. You can't get it from Instagram. You can't get it from people. You can't get it from online. You can't get it from people. You can't get it from your wife. God knows you're not going to get it from your children until they're 35. You have to get it from the Lord. And here's the deal. If your hopes are in these false hopes, you will find yourself alone, powerless, and limited. Because your hope is ultimately not centered on Jesus. So how do we get this, how do we get real hope? Go to Luke chapter 1. I want to talk about keeping hope alive. Luke chapter 1. Now, if you're not familiar with... um. Luke one. Luke is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. It's an orderly account that has been compiled by Luke to present to us the story of Jesus. And before the first advent of Jesus, before the first coming of Jesus, this gospel starts with a priest, a priest's wife, and then a little bit, Larry, Larry, a little bit later, we'll get to Mary. Now not. This morning so much we're mainly going to focus on on the priest and the priest's wife and where he puts his hope so so here's what's happening in luke <clears throat> detailed story verse uh jump to verse five and we'll read here what's happening this is zachariah the priest he has been chosen to light the incense in the temple huge blessing to do this Not every priest was able to do this. You were selected to do it by lottery. And if you got it, it was a huge blessing. So Zachariah, this season, has the opportunity. He's older in age, and he has the opportunity to go into the temple, to light the incense that represents the perpetual praise and perpetual prayer of the people unto God. And so it's like an ever-increasing worship to God is what it's supposed to be. And so he finds himself going into the temple, and this is where we're at in the story. Verse five, in the days of Herod, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Okay, so they had a hope. That, that's essentially what the text is saying. They wanted a child, and they've never been able to have one. And now, much like Abraham and Sarah, they are childless, advanced in age. Now, while he was serving, verse 8, as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, remember I told you it was by lottery, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But when the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord, a people prepared. So this is John the Baptist that they're speaking of. Now, let me just take a side note to say this because I think it's important to mention it. The Gospel of Luke starts with two women and two wombs. And I think this is important because in Jesus's day, women were not elevated to the same status as men, and neither were children. Children were actually seen as as kind of a, a problem because they weren't guaranteed to live. Birth was a big deal. Women died all the time during childbirth. And so society at that time just had a lower view. But God comes into the picture, and God elevates the status of women and says, listen, Women have a very important role in the kingdom of God. They have a key role to play within the church and within the proclamation of the gospel. In addition to that, it shows the sanctity and the beauty of the womb, that God is sovereign over the womb, and that the womb is beautiful to the Lord, just as the children that reside in the womb. And he elevates the status of the children as well. So I I just think it's important for us to see in the text that God has always seen sanctity of life and children as a big deal and sanctity of women and the beauty of women in a righteous way is a big deal and we as men should be doing everything we can to be elevating that status, guarding that status and living for them in a sacrificial, self-denying way that they would flourish in their roles in the kingdom of God, amen? All the women said amen and all the men said to their wife amen. So with that said now, What do we see here? Remember my definition that I kind of pieced together? Swimming in the promises of God is hope. And if we want to keep hope alive and we're going to swim in the promises, there are six promises that are given to Zechariah in this passage. And though these promises were specific to him, I think from a broad scriptural speaking, at least, we can apply them to us as well in our own right. What are the six promises? that will help keep hope alive. Number one, look at verse 13. Your prayers have been heard, and they've been answered. The first promise we have, 1 John 5, 14 says this as well, we have to have confidence that he hears us. The first promise we swim in is when we speak, God is in tune to your voice. And not only is he in tune to your voice, he's in tune to your heart. That's why when when Scripture says, even when we don't know how we should pray. And it talks about that kind of prayer that is groaning. You know, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. But God knows the heart of our prayer. My friends, if you're going to keep hope alive, and if you're going to keep your hope centered on Jesus, you have to be a person of prayer, but you have to be a person in faith that you understand that God hears that prayer. And God's going to answer that prayer according to his timeline. Remember, this has got to be a big deal for Zechariah. He's in the temple, and he's serving. And and before this, (coughs) excuse me, before this, God had been speaking to his people throughout generation after generation. Prophets and judges and kings. And then after Micah, you get a 400-year silence. God no longer speaks. There's a promise of a Messiah in the last kind of speech of God, if you will. But then 400 years where God doesn't speak, what do you think that was like for the people of Israel? Where's Yahweh? Has he abandoned us? Is he there? We're patiently waiting. We're hoping. We're hoping for God. We're hoping on God. And, And as they're waiting on the Lord, and as they're praying, 400 years and now God finally speaks. You may feel like God is taking an eternity to answer your prayer, but you've never had to wait 400 years. And yet these people have. And we're still, right now, we're still yearning along and warning, Jesus, Christmas is a promise. We celebrate Christmas as a promise that you're going to come again. But when you look outside, unless you are studying, you know, some of your end times theology and eschatology, you might look into the world and go, it's all hopeless, like everybody else. What I see is I go, as the world is decaying and it's getting worse and worse, My hope is just getting bigger and bigger because it's saying to me, as the days grow darker, Jesus' day to coming and receiving his bride becomes brighter. And then the second promise, look, he says, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him John, which means Jehovah is a gracious giver. So the second promise is you're going to have a child, but mainly the message of this child is you've been, even though you're late in age, this is a, a gift of God to you by grace. I think the message here and the promise here for us is to recognize God is going to deal with his children, not under a banner of wrath and judgment, but the promise from God is he's going to deal with you graciously. How many of you have ever had besetting sins that you just couldn't get rid of? And you're like, why in the world has God not just slapped me across the face yet? (laughs) Because he's long-suffering and he's patient. And it tells us that it is his long-suffering and him treating us kindly that helps us lead to repentance. Number three, look at verse 14. You and your people will know joy and gladness. Yet through you, through this child who's going to bring the advent of Jesus, the first advent, and prepare the people for the hearts, prepare their hearts for Christ, that through you, you will bring many people, your whole nation, Joy and gladness. This is true for us as too. This is part of the Christmas spirit. We're to carry Christ with us in such a way that wherever we go, we bring joy and gladness. One of the things I love about uh, when I go to the gym is all of my all of my buddies there that I know that aren't Christians. Like it's hey hey, hey. <laughs> it's John Baggio. He's not here this morning. So you know John Baggio. You remember, remember? No, okay. That's how he talks. So just as a backdrop, John Begio who attends here, he sits right over here. He was, my, uh, he was my, I think, my preschool gym teacher. And now he attends church here. You remember him, Kip, don't you? Right? And John, he's hilarious. And he used to have the biggest wad of keys that you've ever seen. And he'd come into all the kids, and we'd all be lining up. This is back when you actually did gym as a kid. And they had all the kids all lined up in rows, you know, and you'd all have to stretch. And while we were doing stretches, he'd be like, Okay, reach for your toes. And he'd pull out those thing of keys, you remember, Kip? And he'd throw them in the air and he'd catch them behind his back and he'd throw them under his thing. He'd be, whoa, whoa, whoa! Hey! No? Okay. He still does it on Sunday mornings. If you walk in and you go, BJO, you! you go, first year, just reach the Christmas man on earth, or there is That was mainly for my entertainment, sorry. <clears throat> um One, two, three, fourth one. He says he'll be great. This baby that's going to come is going to be great. He's going to prepare the way. And likewise, Scripture tells us that our faith, not our, our personal righteousness, not our deeds, not our personalities, but our faith makes us great in the kingdom. That even the person who is the smallest in the church, it says, even those in the back, really the most important people in the family of God are those that no one sees or hears from, but they just serve, right? And so you'll be great in the kingdom. Uh, And then, one, two, three, I should have numbered them. One, two, three, four. Fifth one, Israel will see a national awakening and revival. That's his other promise. And likewise, I believe that as we proclaim the gospel and we desire to keep hope alive, we too, in our local area, God desires, and you have to carry this with you, God desires that you would be part of a awakening here in the Tahoe Basin and beyond. That in your pockets of, uh, of influence, whether you're a teacher, you're at the hospital, or you plow snow, which you're not here this morning, or you do some other kind of job, whatever that job may be, you all know people that God has his hand on and God is asking you to play a part in inviting them to church proclaiming the gospel, helping them grow in their faith, however that may look. Sometimes it's small steps, sometimes it's big steps, right? And, and, and as they progress, you're there to help bring awakening and revival to that person's heart or soul. Every Christian has an obligation and has been empowered to share the gospel of Jesus. Christmas should share with us that all of our area and all of our world, like the snow that has fallen from the sky, that his grace and his message should blanket the entire globe. And we are the salt and light. And so we're called to not keep our faith private. Our faith is to be very public and a very adoring faith. Not I'm proving you wrong and proving myself right, but let me tell you of the man that is God that I'm in love with. Share with people the heart and love you have for Christ. Don't share with them how they're wrong. Don't try to correct them on everything. Don't try to fix all of their sins. God will deal with that. Let them see that you're madly in love with the King of Kings. Let them see that you live life differently because you follow Christ. And then lastly, he'll prepare the way of the Messiah. That's the last promise. And likewise, the church is to be doing the same. There's another Advent coming. We have an obligation to continue to prepare the way for the second advent. Okay, those are the promises. Remember, you gotta swim in those. If if you're gonna have hope, you have to swim in promises of God. This is just a few of them. I've been kind of hammering this over the last several weeks because it's been such a big deal in my life and to me and I think for our church. You can't proclaim the promises of God if you don't know the promises of God. That's why you've gotta read scripture so you can know the things that Jesus has actually said he'll give you And in your prayer closet, you can go to Jesus and say, Hey, Dad, you told me you'd give me peace. Can I have it? You told me that you would give me full acceptance. Can I know it? You told me that you would carry me to heaven. Can you assure that for me? And I promise you, not me, God promises you, he'll fulfill those things but you have to find him in Jesus. So, so now let's talk about tangibles and takeaways, and then we'll close, and you can go blow more snow because that's what I'm going to be doing. How do you keep hope alive? From the text. Number one, notice that Zachariah and his wife both lived a faithful life of service unto God all the way up until an old age. If you want to keep hope alive, you serve God. You serve behind the scenes, you serve the kids next door, you pick up trash, you snow shovel there's a bunch of guys here this morning who cleared all this out for you. The snow didn't magically disappear. there's a bunch of dudes who got here really early and they cleared out the snow so that you could walk up here and not fall down and break a bone or two right that's service and they did it to an old age and I think this is important because our society our society has has overcorrected towards elevating youth and overcorrected in devaluing the elderly. In our church, we've been really blessed. Most churches don't have a diversity like we have. Now, now, granted, Truckee's never been a very racially diverse place. So I'm not talking about racially diverse, though I wish we had more of that. I really do. Those of you who don't know, my, my wife is half Hispanic. My father-in-law is uh, Chinese. My uh, aunt-in-law is uh, Jamaican. Um, does that cover all of them? I'm the only white one, that's all you need to know. And I love the diversity. Because at Christmas time, we don't have typical white boy Christmas. We we've got we've got Asian Christmas and Mexican Christmas. Let me tell you, if you've not had Asian Christmas or Mexican Christmas, you are missing out because it's way better than white Christmas. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> Back to my point of the elderly and how important this is. Listen to what this commentary says in regards to the elderly. This lesson, speaking towards Zechariah, this commentary is speaking specifically of this text. This lesson applies to older Christians in particular. So if you're older, whatever, however you want to define that, if you're tuning in or if you're here, this is for you. And this is important. I want you to hear this from my pastoral heart for our church. This lesson applies to older Christians in particular. Don't let age hinder you. From God's work in and through you. You were not forgotten in God's plan any more than Elizabeth and Zachariah were forgotten. You are a vital part of God's plan in the church. In fact, without you, we cannot do the one thing that Christ commands in Matthew twenty eight eighteen. Make disciples. Christ has ordered things in his church in such a way that the older persons who this is scriptural. It is the older persons among us who are meant to teach the younger. Don't believe me? Read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Specifically says older men are to teach younger men. Older women are to teach younger women. You are not simply along for the ride if you're older. We do not want you to sit in a corner and forget about you. And it is to our shame that older persons are forgotten in society. We want to treasure you. We want to remind you of God's plan for your life. And we want to see you active and involved in all God has for us and his church. There are churches who, in the sake of reaching the lost, have designed their entire services completely around youth. And I'm all for reaching the next generation. But it is to our shame and it is to our, our, our a life of folly for us to not embrace and empower and listen to the older people that God has given us. Because they know things we don't know. Guess what we live in? We live in a society where everybody has knowledge. You can Google anything you want. But you know what we don't have? Don't have a lot of wisdom. I told one of my sons this this week. I said, son, and he's a smart kid. I said to him, I, there, there is a big difference between stupid and, and, and smart, but there's an even bigger difference between wisdom and foolishness. And my son knows that he's somewhat intelligent. Knowledge puffs up. And what I told him, I, 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 and I believe this to be true. I might have to think it through a little bit more, but I said, son, I'd, I'd rather you have wisdom even more so than intelligence and knowledge. Because I know if he's wise, he's going to choose the things of God. He's going to be praying about what kind of wife he should have. He's going to be praying about how to raise his kids. He's going to be praying about how to engage with his church. That's wisdom. That's not has nothing to do with intelligence. And, and luckily, I, I had a grandfather at a young age. I remember... Because my whole life as a young kid, I was told I was stupid. I mean, literally. I was held back in, uh, at a young age, and, and, man, I was in special ed classes, and you name it. And I just was, you're not smart, you're not smart. And I remember I started to embrace that as part of my identity. And I remember I was in the car with my grandfather who was a Christian one time, and I was like, yeah, I'm just dumb, though. And then I remember my grandfather said to me, and he said, well, have you chosen Jesus? And I said, yeah, I have. And he goes, well, then you're the smartest person on the planet. Because that's the only thing you really need to be intelligent about. And it allowed me at that time at a young age to realize, I got something that some people never get. And that's not even intelligence. That's wisdom. And so, again, the encouragement here to keep hope alive in the church, we have to embrace our older folks. And older folks... You've got to embrace the younger folks. You've got to understand that, yeah, life is moving faster than you ever thought it would. Technology is moving fast, and the Internet's hard to grasp, and, but you still have to try your best. And at the end of the day, if you can't do anything technological with our younger folks, that's okay. Share with them how stupid they are. Don't say it that way. <laughs> but share with them. You need wisdom because some of you older folks, like I think of Wayne and Sandy. Sandy's here this morning, and and... The wisdom she has, if you're a woman and you want to know how to lovingly submit to a man who loves God but is incredibly hard to live with, right, Sandy? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I worked with him for for 18 years. I know exactly who he is. He's a great guy. He's watching online. i got to pick on him. Uh, But the wisdom she possesses in how to love a husband, you can't put a price on that. You just can't. And it's to your folly, if you're younger, by not seeking out someone like Sandy or Wayne. It is, it's to your folly. It's not to your betterment. And what we have is we've got a lot of young people who think they know a lot of things. And the reality is, is they're just setting themselves up for more disappointment because they're placing their hope in the wrong spot. So keep hope alive. We need old folks. Number two, uh, verse six, live a life in line with God's word and his promises. Those are the promises he gives him. Number three, uh, live, walk blamelessly. You see that in verse six as well. Notice both of them. Both mom and dad, Zacharias and his wife, they both lived blamelessly, righteous. They were innocent before God, without guilt. That's what that word means. If you want to keep hope alive, walk blamelessly. Don't walk in sin. Don't go near sin. Number uh, four, be persistent in your prayer. Remember, they've been praying day in day out. He's into the temple at an old age. Zachariah has made his living on prayer. If we're going to keep hope alive, we have to pray. Pray for our church. Pray for revival. Pray for awakening. Pray for healthy hearts towards Christ. Pray for God to do what we can't do. And number four, this is the last, uh, number five, this is the last one. Let God's word just be the final answer on everything. Why do I say that? Let's continue the text. Look at verse 18. After all of this happens, the angel shows up in the temple, speaks to him. He's afraid, and this is his response. Zachariah said to the angel, how shall I know? How shall I know this is going to happen? It's like, you remember the comedian? Here's your sign. The angel's in the temple. And you're asking him, how shall I know this? God has spoken to you. And listen to the angel's response. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Uh Uh-oh. I stand in the presence of God. Whoa. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until these things take place. You will not get to talk because you didn't believe God's final answer. I'm gonna basically saying, no more speech for you, just the echo of God's words and promises, which leads us to, in the conclusion of all this, to say when God speaks, our job, when God promises, our job is to say, that's the final answer. Yes, Lord, I don't want to have false hopes, And so I completely yield my power to you. I completely submit all of my control to you. And I completely remember that you're my greater comfort. And I completely rejoice in your approval. And I pray and I trust. Because God, what you say is true and trustworthy. And I put all my hope, I put all my eggs in that basket. Because that kind of hope will never disappoint. And this is what it says as we close. Romans 5.2, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in hope, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, listen, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Our suffering creates something in us that gives us endurance. Endurance produces character, gives us a good inner man, And character produces what? Hope. You hear it? It's almost as if he's saying, the more you put your life in Christ, and the more you align yourself with Christ, the greater your hope will be, the more joy you'll have, the more peace you'll possess. And you need to walk in that every single day. Because hope is not conditional. It's not based on if it snows or if it doesn't snow. It's not based on if you get married or if you don't get married. It's not based if you can get pregnant or not get pregnant. It's based on the person of Jesus who has promised to redeem you, promised to cleanse you of of all of your sin, and he's promised to put you in a community of everlasting joy forever and evermore and heaven with him for an eternal life of bliss forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. pray that you continue to lead us and guide us and provide for us. Keep our congregation safe on the roads, Lord, and give us the endurance to plow everything away. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, a couple things as you leave, and and for you online, if you're still tuning in, uh, there's Christmas Eve services, one at uh, 5 p.m., one at 6.30. And then Christmas Day, there is church, uh, one service at 10 a.m. So just one service at 10 a.m. And uh, we'll see you then. God bless you. Be safe. (laughs) we <laughs> save your space